negative way, we are stalled because there's many things that need to be said in some of these portions of Scripture. And we find ourselves especially going through the 12 men that Jesus called to be his emissaries of truth. And we know that 11 of them were men that were faithful and one was not. And we find ourselves, therefore, looking at the men that Jesus shaped. We've had a fascinating journey thus far. We've been able to see impulsive Peter turned into a seasoned leader. We have seen how he used a quiet man like Andrew, the behind the scenes kind of guy, to to be content to serve in obscurity and to become a fruitful evangelist. We've seen how he harnessed the the brashness of the sons of thunder, James and John, so that they could eventually become a powerful and useful blend of love and truth. And today we will look at verse three in particular, just one word, the word Philip. But let's read the first few verses here to get the flow once again, beginning in verse one of chapter 10. And having summoned his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who was called Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother. And then we come to Philip. Philip is the next on the list of these very common and ordinary men that Jesus chose to be his closest companions, the official emissaries of the kingdom. And as we have seen, these men have only one remarkable qualification, and that is they lacked remarkable qualifications. They were prejudiced. They were impetuous. They were hard hearted. They were uneducated. They were proud. They were cowardly, unreliable. Spiritually immature, sounds like my resume and yours, (laughs) the most unlikely candidates, yet just the kind of men that God loves to transform and use for his marvelous purposes. And we see the marvelous impact that they had throughout the years, 12 very plain and ordinary men. And as we have learned thus far. From the world's perspective, it was utterly foolish for God to do such a thing. And that's why many people would have thought back then, as some do today, that it would be ridiculous to think that the God of the universe would try to set up his kingdom by picking 12 guys like this to be really the foundation of the church of which Christ was the cornerstone. Why didn't he go to the religious elite? Why didn't he go to the politicians? Why didn't he go to... People with clout, the celebrities. But no, instead, he chose a bunch of fishermen, a tax collector, a Jewish terrorist called a zealot, as we will see, and some other very ordinary, nondescript people. So that ultimately he would get the glory. In fact, as we think of how counterintuitive it is for God to do so much of what he does, we reminded by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 that the world would consider the foolishness of God. And yet it is wiser than men. And he says the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not that he might nullify the things that are that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus again by his doing. You are in Christ Jesus. So as we study the lives of these men, we can see that we can all be encouraged because he uses not our abilities, but our availability. And he will give us all that we need to accomplish the task that he has given us through his indwelling spirit. And so, beloved, may I say to you, never underestimate your capacity to be used by God. It's not your Lot in life that determines how God can use you. It's not your educational background. It's not your experience, your gender, your socio, your socioeconomic situation. Even your spiritual condition, God can deal with if you're repentant. All of these factors are meaningless as long as you are willing to humble yourself before the Lord and be available to be used in his kingdom. As long as you're teachable, as long as you're available. Now, most Christians, I fear, fail to live up to their potential. And we're going to see some of the problems in the life of Philip that some can identify with, I'm sure. But many times I see that Christians fail to live up to their potential and therefore they forfeit not only earthly blessings, but also eternal reward. And I guess you could come up with a, a list as to why, but certainly I would see three things Three reasons for this. One, many people just live in habitual sin. They're just life dominating sins, flaws in their personality. They refuse to examine their heart. They love those secret sins, whatever they might be. And as a result, they forfeit blessing. So God can't use them like he could if they were repentant. Another reason is just habitual laziness. I see so many Christians, especially in our day, that are just spiritual couch potatoes. They have no self-discipline. They look for any excuse to avoid the disciplines of the Christian life. And yet the Apostle Paul told Timothy to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And therefore, those kinds of people end up being ignorant. They'll end up being undiscerning. They will be self-absorbed. And again, they'll never live up to their capacity. They'll never maximize their potential. And probably a third reason would be habitual prayerlessness. Think about it. Since so many people refuse to serve in the army of the Lord and they want to sit on the sidelines and watch other people go to battle. They obviously become oblivious to the needs around them and. They will see, therefore, no need for divine provisions to carry out the battle and to sustain themselves. And so, therefore, there's no need to rush into the divine presence and say, oh, God, help me as I do battle for your sake. And as I enjoy the battle, knowing that when I fight for you, I sense your presence. See, if you're not in the battle, folks, you're not going to see any need for prayer. 
Habitual sinfulness, habitual laziness, habitual prayerlessness. Well, not so for 11 of the 12 apostles. We see something very different in their lives. And as we observe the interaction between the incarnate Christ and these undistinguished men, we also see a very important ministry principle begin to emerge, one that we will look at much more closely in weeks to follow. We see the principle that concentration produces multiplication. In other words, you go deep with a few, and when you do that, you will multiply your efforts. You don't go shallow with many, you go deep with a few. And again, we will develop that in weeks to come. But today we're going to examine the life of Philip. Now, first of all, might I say there's not going to be a very one, two, three type of outline this morning. I'm just going to talk to you about Philip and I'm going to show you a few things he struggled with that I think are relevant to each of our lives. And it's just fun to see how God took him and changed him. Now, first of all, remember that this is not Philip the deacon, the evangelist that met with the Ethiopian. OK, remember that um, the, the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that story in, in Acts six. Not, it's not the same Philip. Scripture doesn't tell us what his Jewish name was, but his Greek name was Philip, which means lover of horses. And he was probably from a Hellenistic family of, of Jews, those Jews that had adopted the, the Greek culture, the Greek, the Greek language. And he is, interestingly enough, the fifth name on every list of the apostles that we see in the New Testament, which indicates that he was no doubt the leader of the second group of four apostles, Peter being the group of the first, the leader of the first group and the foremost of all of the apostles, as we have studied. In John chapter one, verse 44, Philip uh, was from Bethsaida, which the text says was the city of Andrew and Peter. They were also fishermen. All fishermen, along with uh, two other people in his group, as we will see, Bartholomew, they can also be called uh, Nathaniel and Thomas. And so they were friends of Peter and Andrew, James and John, all God-fearing Jews. They probably all attended the same synagogue. Okay, so it would be as though Jesus were to come to this place here in Jolton and pick friends. Okay, that's that's the concept you want to keep in mind. Now, it's interesting as I reflect upon this, that Jesus chose a team where over half of the men already were close friends. Interesting thought. They therefore shared the same cultural values. They had hardly any diversity that could potentially become problematic in their endeavor to, to grow and to be trained and to serve. I have served on many boards in my life and mostly in religious organizations. And it's been my experience that whenever you mix cultural backgrounds, you mix socioeconomic backgrounds, whenever there's large disparities, especially in doctrine, uh, when there's even a wide disparity in education, it's going to be a recipe for disaster. I've seen that. And it, I, I think of it this way. It's kind of like if you take a possum and a coon and a weasel and a dog and a cat and you throw them all in a barrel, you're going to have problems. The fur is going to fly and somebody is going to die. And so perhaps Jesus and his infinite wisdom knew to pick some men that already shared much of the same background and the same worldview, even though it was warped and it needed to be changed. And also, there is great wisdom, I believe, in the fact that he chose uneducated men whose minds had not previously been shaped by error. And they had also not had time to convince themselves 
as sometimes is the case with educated people, of their omniscience, making them unteachable, know-it-alls, filled with pride and selfish ambition. I have seen that it is much easier to train uneducated men who are teachable than educated prima donnas who are not. And I would hasten to add that not all well-educated people are unteachable. Certainly the Apostle Paul wasn't. However, he did have a bit of a nudge, didn't he, on the road to Damascus. And that encounter with the living God humbled him very quickly. But I will say that it's, it's very rare to find well-educated, especially um, in our culture, to find very well-educated people that are teachable. Moreover, I would also hasten to add that not all uneducated people are teachable. Sometimes you have people that are too ignorant to know they're ignorant and they're proud of it. And because of their pride, uh, anyone who challenges the wisdom of whatever position they have made will incur their wrath. Sometimes logic and exegesis and common sense never come into play. Two plus two is going to be five. doesn't matter what you say, regardless of the mountains of evidence to the contrary, two plus two, two will be five. And when you have that, you just need to move on down the road. So anyway, before the foundation of the world, God chose these men. In fact, we read in John 15 and verse 16, Jesus tells them, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Isn't that interesting? Before they were ever born. And certainly we see the same concept wrapped around the glorious concepts of our own salvation. So God in his infinite wisdom chose these very common men, as common as a fence post and sometimes equally as dense, to follow him and to be trained by him. Now, Philip, very fascinating character. And I might also add that those men in my life and women that share his personality, who manifest some of the same interpersonal styles of relating that we will see with, with Philip, styles of relating born out of a sinful heart, will be those kinds of people that I have had a very difficult time being around. And maybe you have as well. You see, Philip was what we would call a bean counter. Philip was obsessed with materialism, as many bean counters are. The type that would keep track of every penny. You know the type. Let me talk about the general type and then we'll look in the text and we'll see how this manifested itself with Philip. These type of people are consumed with process and protocol. They are what we might call administrative control freaks. They will give you 40, 40 reasons why every idea that anyone comes up with simply cannot work. They are what we call corporate killjoys. In the business world, when I've been in those board meetings with those kinds of people, they're what we call deal killers, not deal makers. They are not entrepreneurs. They are very proud to wear a badge, a very big one that says cynic. They are chronically pessimistic. They can't see beyond their analytical nose. They are absolutely terrified of adventure. They abhor change. They are worrisome. And risk is a four-letter word. Because of their weak faith and commitment to self-protection, they simply can't function without guarantees, which must be documented in detail. 
They will spin out of control without a manual of standard operating procedures, which they love to write. They love to meditate upon and they love to carry with them. In fact, their favorite reading material in a church would be the Constitution and bylaws. And they will meditate on those. They will memorize those. They will quote to you those things when necessary. I believe they will even write songs about the Constitution and bylaws of the church. They will have Robert's Rules of Order on CD so they can listen to it in their car. You get the type. You understand what I'm saying. Everything has to be by the book. Reminds me of Barney Fife. You know, anytime anybody broke a rule, he could quote to you exactly what law it was and the number and everything. That type of person. Policies are not guidelines. They are rigid laws and they must be obeyed regardless. No exceptions. No mitigating circumstances. They are obsessed with organization and they keep everything and everyone under control. And anyone who doesn't conform with their way of thinking simply must die. Now, obviously, I'm exaggerating it, but you get the idea. These type of people, as Philip was, was what you might call or they are what we might call fastidious, a word we don't use a lot. They're fastidious and proud of it. The Oxford Dictionary would describe fastidious as excessively particular, critical or demanding, hard to please, requiring or characterized by excessive care. In church situations, these are people that kill vision. They simply are unable to see potential. They cannot grasp the big picture. And because they are narrow minded uh, to look beyond the safety of their ledgers and laws, they will end up making terrible leaders because, frankly, they won't take anybody anywhere they haven't already been. And they tend to make terrible followers because they simply freak out if they're asked to do anything beyond the limits of their myopic little fortress of comfort, comfort and control that they have concocted. If you share with these type of people uh, any kind of a new idea, they will be flabbergasted. They'll look like you're, they're having a gallbladder attack. Instantly, they will become red-faced and angry, utterly oblivious to the magnificent possibilities that you can look for to watch God put His glory on display. Instead, you will hear them often say, well, we've never done it that way before. Well, 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 I, I, I just don't I, I just can't see that. Uh, that. That's impossible. Rather than saying, oh, that's an interesting idea. Wouldn't that be great? I wonder if that could work. What an opportunity. You know, let, let, let's give uh, let, let's give that some careful thought and prayer. Let's weigh the pros and cons. And, and, and if God leads, let's see how we can accomplish this by the power of God. What an exciting adventure this could be. What a challenge this is. Think of the possibilities. Think of what God could do if maybe that particular idea or that particular vision could come about. Well, not so with Philip. Let's look at it in John chapter 6. Will you turn there with me? John chapter 6. The context here. The multitudes are following after Jesus. In fact, we read in verse 10 that 
there was about 5,000, and as we understand this, this would have been a reference to 5,000 men, which when you add the women and the children, it could be between 15 and 20,000 people that are following Jesus. So a lot of people following after the Lord. Disciples are with him now. And let's notice what it says here in verse five. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Now, let's stop there for a second. As you look through scripture, you begin to see that Philip was apparently the chief operating officer of the twelve. Because certainly his ability to organize and all has a place. However, as we know, every virtue can become a vice, right? So he was probably the chief operating officer here in the, with the 12, the administrator. He would have been the logistics specialist. Uh, by the way, we see the same dynamic in John 12 when the, the God-fearing Jews came to Philip to get an appointment to go see Jesus. And we won't look at that text. We won't have time today. But you, you begin to see this picture of this dear brother. So he would have been the one that would have bought and distributed the food for the, the 12 and others that were with that entourage. The one that would have secured lodging for them and arranged meetings and interviews with Jesus and so on. In fact... In this particular context, if we were to go to Matthew 14, you don't need to, but we we read that Jesus had compassion on the multitude. Uh, he was healing their sick. And and we see now that it's late in the evening and the apostles are beginning to get hungry, as were other people. It was dinner time. And of course, if you think about it, you can't very well eat in front of all these hungry people, you know, 20,000 people that are hungry and you're going to, you know, break out your your knapsack and eat? I don't think so. In fact, in Matthew fourteen fifteen, it says, And when it was evening, the disciples came to him, referring to Jesus, saying, The place is desolate, and the time is already past. In other words, time to eat. So send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So that's the context. Now, it's fascinating that the text tells us specifically that Jesus comes to Philip, and he says to him, you know, Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? I wonder why he did that. Well, certainly, again, we can see that he was Philip would have been the one, the logistics man that he would have gone to. But we see something different in verse six that adds to this. It says, and this he was saying to test him for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Isn't that interesting? The Lord's up to something here in shaping Philip's life. Now, the word test in the original language is a neutral term. It is uh, really a term that you could think of in terms of being two sides of a coin. Um, you've got one side where you might think of it as, as a pass fail type of thing, two sides. But think of one side where you would have in a test an opportunity to do righteous Deeds, an opportunity to respond in righteousness or by the same token, if you choose, you can respond in unrighteousness, in sinfulness. So Jesus now loving this dear man seizes upon a teachable moment, a great opportunity to test his faith. And what we see him doing here is overwhelming Philip with his worst nightmare an utter impossibility. Now, this isn't in the text. 
And I wouldn't want to build a denomination on what I'm about to say, but let me just think with you. Perhaps Jesus kind of smiled and winked at the others when he said, it's kind of like, guys, watch this. Hey, Philip, how are you going to feed all these guys? And Philip, I'm sure if we want to go back to the Barney, Barney Fife analogy. I'm sure he had that Barney look. Oh, my goodness. What am I? You know, his eyes as big as saucers. His jaw drops down to his knees. Suddenly, God has thrust him into this impossible situation beyond his ability to control. He's, he's spinning out of control. But isn't it interesting? Philip's response very predictable. Verse seven, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for for everyone to receive a little. Now, think again. Now, keep in mind here what's going on. Jesus, Jesus knows that Philip's faith is weak. Philip tends to depend upon his own efforts to make his world work. He's got it all figured out in his heart how he's going to make everything happen. And Jesus knew how frustrated Philip would get if proper protocol and proper Organizational process wasn't followed. Here you've got 20,000 hungry, unexpected guests coming around the campfire. This was a perfect scenario to put Philip in a position of utter desperation and panic. Now, remember, the word improvise to a man like Philip strikes terror in his heart. He's a process person. He's got everything, all of his ducks in a row. This would be like asking him to putting him in a round room and telling him to go sit in the corner. It was driving him crazy, I'm sure. So Jesus was, in effect, saying, hey, Philip, how are you going to feed all these people? How are you going to pull this one off? How are you going to handle this situation? Now, you would have thought that Peter would have answered this way. Lord, it's simple. <laughs> I'm going to trust you. It's simple. You are the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And I am utterly helpless to meet this overwhelming need. Lord, what I'm going to do is, is just relax in your great power. That's all I know to do. I'm going to watch you put your glory on display because this is utterly impossible for me. I, I have seen the glory and the majesty of your power. I have stood in absolute amazement as you demonstrated your power over sickness and over disease I've seen you cause the lame to walk and the blind to see and the deaf to hear. I've seen you make withered limbs whole. I, I've seen your power over demons. I've seen your power over sin, over nature. Oh, my dear Jesus, my Savior and my Lord, my King, my God. Feeding these dear people in this desolate place is a very simple task for Almighty God. So, Lord, when you ask me, what am I going to do? I'm going to stand back and I'm going to allow my soul to be thrilled as I watch you put your glory on display. But no, no, that's not what he said. Philip was too consumed with his own need to make his own world work. And he had convinced himself of his own deity. He had functioned quite well without God in his life. So he says 200 denarii and he's thinking he's doing his calculations. By the way, 200 denarii, a denarii would have been um, one day's uh, wage or a denarius would be one day's wage for a day of labor. So this would have been about eight months worth of, of a single day laborers wages. So he's thinking this through. Now, let's go back to the scene. Remember now it's evening. It's dusk. The apostles are hungry. And maybe even some of them came to Philip and said, hey, Philip, when am I going to eat? I'm hungry. 
And then to make matters worse, the crowd is restless. And then Jesus says, oh, Philip, how are we going to feed these folks? And I can imagine Philip, he pulls out his calculator and, you know, he's perspiring profusely by now. He's beginning to hyperventilate. And then Peter, you know how Peter is. Peter comes up and says, hey, Phil, how are you coming? Hey, would you get out of here? So Philip is frantically thinking, there's just no way. Even if I spend all of our reserves, which would be poor stewardship, we're just not going to have enough. Well, you get the idea. You can read in verse verse eight, then one of his disciples, Andrew, Isn't it great. Andrew comes along the behind the scenes kind of guy. Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, said to the Lord, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? And so at least he had a little faith and he's probably rescuing his dear friend, Philip. And you know the rest of the story. God put his power on display and ministered in a magnificent way. What a great lesson for Philip and for all of us. And if I can put it this way, folks, we we are going to be put into these situations and we have to learn to simply relax in the Lord. And frankly, it is sin to try and prepare for every conceivable contingency. It shows a lack of faith. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a place for being organized. I'm not saying there's no place for process and protocol. Not at all. But when it begins to drive other people nuts, there's probably sin going on. Friends, never assume responsibility for matters beyond your control. And when you find yourself spinning out of control, when certain things come your way, it's at that point you have to examine your heart and say, you know, Thank you, God, that you have put me into this position so I can learn to relax in you and to begin to gain confidence in what I know to be true in my heart and in my mind. And at times, what Jesus is saying, in essence, is I will deliberately place you into impossible situations that force you to be dependent upon me. And I want you to learn to look forward to those times with great anticipation so that you can watch me prove myself powerful. On your behalf, beloved, faith is like a muscle and it's never going to grow unless you exercise it. And if you stop using it, it will atrophy just like your physical muscle. I think of the father of the demon possessed boy. Remember in Mark nine, remember the disciples were unable to to deliver him from the bondage of the demons and in an utter desperation, the father pleads with Jesus to deliver his son. And in that text, he says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. To which Jesus responds, what do you mean? If I can, all things are possible to him who believes. And then immediately that boy's father cried out and began saying, I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. You see, that man had a, for a long time considered his son's case to be hopeless. And yet he confesses, Lord, I believe. And we, and we know that he meant that with his earnestness and with his tears. And yet at the same time, in his heart, there was lingering unbelief. Help my unbelief, he says. And that's exactly where Philip needed to come. You see, friends, there is a special weakness inherent in the newborn believer, in newborn faith. And this man in Mark 9, as well as certainly Philip that we're dealing with here this morning. And perhaps you were people like that. 
Think about this for a moment. There are special dangers to those that have recently come to Christ or those that have never grown much in Christ. Those people whose faith has never been tested. There are special dangers there, especially in times of great personal distress. Because think of this, the prince of darkness is enraged whenever a soul is delivered from the from the dungeon of his dominion. And he will quickly assault as soon as those people flee from the city of destruction and begin their journey to the celestial city. For those of you that have been with me with Bunyan, you understand the analogy. In fact, isn't it interesting that Bunyan very appropriately placed the slew of despond at the very outset of Pilgrim's journey? You remember that? Knowing that that is when Satan will typically seize the vulnerability of weak and untested faith. And then the wicked fiend will try to to sink you. If you're an immature, untested believer, try to sink you in the quicksand of discouragement and, and of doubt and ultimately drown you in despair. And in order to avoid that, you come up with all kinds of ways in your heart that begins to manifest itself in your personality, that begins to drive everybody crazy around you. That is your own way of saying, God, I'm not sure I trust your resources. Thank you, but I've invented my own like that desperate father, I believe Philip believed and yet not completely. You see, his faith had never grown strong in the Lord by depending upon him, even in the midst of these types of situations. That's why the Lord very lovingly brought this scenario to him to expose this idol in his heart of fastidious control and this preoccupation with process and all of these things that would rob him of the joy of watching the Lord Demonstrate his glory in his life. We all have to be careful of those idols that we invent to protect ourselves from a very uncertain world. Beloved, we must learn to spot the myriads of ways that our clever fallen hearts can devise evil. And the way they will manifest themselves in our personalities. Our deceitful hearts are incredibly cunning, forever inventing ways to dethrone God. And to exalt some other ridiculous deity that we suppose will somehow guarantee that we will have all of the resources we need to survive every situation. And it always has with it a very errant assumption, and that is that God is not enough. Such always is the illusion of idolatry. Idols in our heart will promise that which it cannot deliver. So Jesus tested Philip to expose his radical commitment to self-protection, to demonstrate the foolishness of his obsessions and the weakness of his faith, the idols that he had erected. I think of Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 2. We read there, for idols speak delusions. They comfort in vain. Think of the idols that we have in our hearts. I think also of Jonah chapter 2 and verse 8. There Jonah says, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. It's interesting, the word should, uh, uh, regard there, shamar in, in Hebrew means to guard something as if it were a great treasure. And here the imagery is that people are guarding as if it's a great treasure, a vain idol. It can even be translated lying vanities. In other words, they're guarding objects of trust that can deliver nothing. What utter foolishness that is. 
So he says those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, which literally means those kinds of people. And we can all fall into this, friends, will forfeit blessing that God longs to bestow upon us. And this is what he wanted for Peter. I mean, for Philip. So Jesus knew that in order to strengthen his face, his faith, he he must force him to exercise it. So he gives them gives him this impossible situation. He wanted him to experience just the exhilarating joy of depending solely on his God. And certainly Philip would need this later on, would he not? As he went out to minister into the world, to leave that slew of despond and ascend to the alpine meadows, shall we say, of divine blessing. And to begin to, to, to literally enjoy the euphoric adventure that is ours when we walk by faith and not by sight. So that he could solely depend upon the Lord for his every need. And then he could echo the words that the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 3.20. Where you can literally experience the one who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. According to the power that works within us. Ah, But it was a hard lesson for Philip to learn. Let me give you another example. Turn to John 14. A few pages over John 14, we see another illustration of this demanding spirit, of this commitment to have, having guarantees. And you just, you just see all of this struggle in Philip's life as you think about the context of these great narratives. John chapter 14. Remember, it was the eve of our Lord's crucifixion. He knew the the agony that awaited him. He was about to be the propitiator of our sins, the appeasement of divine wrath, the one that would bear the sins of those that had been given to him. This was at the time when the apostles mentoring was about to come to an end. And remember now, they were still confused about what was going on. Even the Lord said in Luke 24, 25, he says about them, they are foolish and slow of heart to believe. Don't you just love them? Don't you just love them? Can't you just see ourselves there? They're believing what they want to believe. They believe that Jesus is going to set up his kingdom and they're going to be in there. Remember, even at this time in John 14, they're still arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Knuckleheads that the Lord loves. Many rough edges still needed to be filed off their sinful hearts. So the context here. They're in the upper room. The Lord has washed their feet. Jesus leaves now to. Leaves the supper to betray them. And then we pick up the narrative here in verse 1 of chapter 14. The Lord says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me in my father's house and many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. And, you know, the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me. Now catch this verse. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him referring to the father and have seen him. Now, folks here, Jesus gives an abundantly clear expression of his deity, that he's God. And if you know me, he's saying, you know, the father, 
But notice verse eight. Philip said to him, now, folks, this is inconceivable. Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Show us the father. Philip, you got to be kidding. No, no, I, I, I need a little more proof. I, I, I know what he said. I, I know what you've said, Lord, but but I need I, I'm just not comfortable with this whole deal. Show us the, the father, then it'll be enough. I mean, folks, this is just inconceivable ignorance and insensitivity. What an incredibly sad demonstration of the heartbreaking consequences of a control freak, of somebody that that, that, that can't live by faith. Yes, I, I, I yes, I've been amazed at all of your miracles. I, I, I've stood in awe at, at, at your teaching. I've been humbled by your love. And yes, I do confess you as Savior and Lord, but I still have some reservations. I, I, I still have a bit of skepticism lingering in the secret recesses of my imagination. So, Lord Jesus, if you will please indulge me, if you will just jump through one more hoop. I really want to be certain here. I hate risk. I've got to have guarantees before I relinquish my well-chiseled strategies to make life work and turn it all over to you. How sad. So many times Christians live just like Philip, committed to their own ridiculous obsessions, and they miss the big picture, never fully trusting in the God they claim to trust. Yes, they trust him as Savior, but ultimately not as Lord. Beloved, unless you live consistently with what you believe, you will never experience divine blessing in your life. It's one thing to know it here. It's another thing to feel it here. Notice what Jesus says in verse 9 to Philip. And this is such a tender rebuke. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? It's kind of like he's saying, where have you been? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father. And the Father in me otherwise believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. By the way, it's not greater in kind, but greater in extent. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, folks, the exciting news is the Lord knew what Philip was like. He chose him anyway. He loved him. He knew that his strength, referring to the Lord's strength, would be made perfect in Philip's weakness. Do you find any comfort in that, friends? I do. And how thankful I am that according to Second Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 14, God has chosen us. From the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this that he called us through the gospel that we may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you see from start to finish, it's all of grace. And he takes those rough edges, whatever they may be. You may not be quite like Philip, maybe something else. But we all have our issues. 
And certainly the Lord made Philip a great preacher. We know that someday he will rule according to Scripture in the millennial kingdom. He will enjoy the glories of heaven. And I look forward to meeting Philip someday. Tradition says that he served faithfully in Asia Minor. Many came to Christ because of his availability and his love for Christ. And yet he was one of the first apostles to be martyred for his faith, a mere eight years after the martyrdom of James. And evidence indicates that he was stoned to death in Heliopolis in Phrygia. Oh, child of God, maybe you are a hyper-organized, fastidious control freak. I don't know. Maybe you hate adventure. Maybe you are one of these that everything has to be by the book and everybody's got to be jumping through your hoops and you just hate that adventure of living by faith. Oh, may I plead with you. Don't allow the fears of this world to cause you to erect idols of protection in your heart. And rob yourself of the joy of walking in the adventure of faith. Trust Him to strengthen your faith like Philip did. As 1 John 5, 4 tells us, and again I think of John, he'd seen all of this, and here's what he says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And I close with the words of that great hymn that came to my mind. John Yates wrote back in the 1800s, Faith is the victory. Here's what he said. Encamped along the hills of light, ye Christian soldiers rise and press the battle ere the night shall veil the glowing skies. Against the foe and veils below, let all our strength be hurled. Faith is the victory we know that overcomes the world. On every hand the foe we find, drawn up in dread array. Let tents of ease be left behind and onward to the fray. Salvation's helmet on each head, with truth all girt about. The earth shall tremble neath our tread and echo with our shout. To him that overcomes the foe, white raiment shall be given before the angels he shall know his name confessed in heaven. Then onward from the hills of light, our hearts with love aflame will vanquish all the hosts of night in Jesus' conquering name. Faith is the victory. Faith is the victory. Oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our dear brother Philip. Thank you, Lord, for the way you worked in his life. Lord, we can see glimpses of ourselves when we look at his life and we see your tender mercy and how you summoned him to walk faithfully in your strength. Oh, God, may that be the cry of each of our hearts. Lord, commit these truths to our hearts and may they bear much fruit. I pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.